following is for information only and should not be relied on for an investment decision. It should not be construed as investment advice. Today I will be discussing a new investment company called Onward Opportunities Limited. The manager of this company is Dowgate Wealth, with whom I work as a consultant. I'm on the advisory board of Onward Opportunities and have invested personally in the company. This episode was recorded on February the 14th, 2023. Onward Opportunities launched on AIM on March the 30th. Today I'm joined by two young active UK equity fund managers with distinct investment styles. Alex Wood is the founder and chief investment officer of Kerno Asset Management, a long short contrarian investor using fundamental analysis and a catalyst driven mean reversion style. Lawrence Hulse is the manager of Onward Opportunities Limited. Onward Opportunities strategy is to take meaningful equity stakes in a small number of UK small and micro cap companies. Lawrence describes the style as engaged activism, using a velvet glove, not a boxing glove. Lawrence gives some examples of how this strategy has been effective in the past, and we discuss the current market conditions in which Lawrence has launched his new vehicle. Alex and Lawrence are maverick investors amongst today's market participants who are often passive trackers, index huggers, or trend followers. This was a fascinating discussion about how professional investors seek to outperform with strategies that Alex describes as suiting their personalities. I greatly enjoyed this chat. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the investment game and how you know Laurie? I run a long, short UK equity fund. We set up, co-founded in 2019 with um, our own money. And today we've got over 100 million, which keeps the wolves at bay. Before that, big for accounting, gig, investment bank, and then a small cap boutique manager. I think Laurie can tell the story how we met because I quite honestly can't remember if it was at a bar or on a company visit or when we might have been opposing shareholders. It might have been all three about the same time. (laughs) Having just gone through setting my own company up, and to quote Steve Cohen, there's kind of a dearth of talent. And what I mean by that is it's not that the people out there don't have the skill sets, but the old prop desks of the 2008 don't exist anymore. Most of the large houses have consolidated into basically index huggers. So there's very few people really applying a unique or even a time-tested skill anymore. And you know, people like Laurie don't come around very often. It's a tough gig, and particularly at the Mike, I don't still thunder, but particularly in the microcap area, there's just not that many managers anymore doing real, whether you call it activist or P investing, or you know, it's more hand holding and guiding. And if you look at the list of investment trusts out there as well, looking at like, the discounts and look at the best performing trusts and the private vehicles of the last 10 years, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that something like this, which from a family office perspective, hat on, you know, we'd be interested in investing and I suspect we will, it could be one of the top performers. You'd say that. There's a dearth of people with the experience, and you both, from my perspective, young guys who seem to be pursuing this path of active management, but taking different paths to the same end objective. For me, 
I've been doing this since I was 15, it took me a while to realize the importance of matching your personality to the way you make money. And I kind of started to figure it out a decade ago. And ultimately, it's, it can be shortened to the way I make money is being a contrarian. If you're basically always buying off distressed sellers and selling to greedy buyers, you're providing liquidity to the market. If you try and look at all the sort of mispricings in the market and identify them and have some evaluation framework, which we do, we can then spot where the value is and then tie the knots. We then target that to a catalyst because there's value there. So what you need it to move, you need some inflection point. And so we tie those things all together and we put it in a portfolio that hopefully makes sense. It's kind of like cooking. You've got all the ingredients and stuff. You're trying to put something together and, and cook it the right way. The crucial thing about being a contrarian is you don't do it just for the sake of it. You go away and do your work and then you come to a viewpoint and then you go look at the market or other participants and they probably have a similar view and you might be to the left of it or the right of it and that's fine. Where you happen to be the exact opposite, that's when it gets really interesting. That's where the work gets really fun for us. And because the world's uncertain and changes over time and probabilities change over time, as long as the world is going to change, we're basically going to always get paid. We're trying to spot those inefficiencies and the degree that we can robustly categorize them and trade them. And so they can be quite violent. The UK market's done about 45 4.7% over the last 10 years, 20 years or whatever. But the individual movement's incredibly violent. And given your background, Germany, you'll know the AIM Wild West. You can have 4,000 baggers over 10 years and you can have a lot of <laughs> zeros. And so picking the right elements and understanding what the weather's doing outside in terms of the stock market and what's going to do well and do badly is a really important and interesting dynamic. I have questions. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do that, should we just bring in Laurie? Laurie? Thanks for joining us today. Can you just give us a little bit about your background in all this and how you got into the investment game, just as a high-level outline of the strategy to actively achieve alpha in the UK equity market? Certainly, and thanks for the intro, Jeremy. I think that I'll cover that. I'll remind Alex how we first met each other and became sort of peers and friends. In terms of me, I was really fortunate to have spent the past seven or so years at a business called Gresham House. I was on the equities team there who specialized in small caps and doing small caps in quite a different hands-on way. And I'll sort of come back to that a little bit in a second and really learn off a quite an eclectic, diverse mix of well-regarded fund managers there. Ken Watton, Richard Staveley, Tony Dilwood, Brendan Goldston, to name a few. Picked up various different techniques and methods from all of them, but the consistent theme amongst that team was really a hands-on, in-depth, specialist approach to small caps. The other key part of my time there, just by quirk of when I joined and when I left, that was a business of a handful of employees that I joined in the summer of 2015. And I left seven years later with 200 colleagues behind and seven and a half billion of assets. I got to certainly observe a lot about growing and managing a business. And of course, that's what an investment company i.e. what I'm launching now is, it's as much a fund as a listed business. And it's those two areas I'm looking to draw together in this next project of mine, Onward Opportunities Limited, a listed investment company. I liked Alex's cooking analogy a minute ago and, and our recipe here, we're pulling together the three core ingredients of any chance to sort of make returns for people really, be it in an operating company or in this case, an investment company. And that is a clearly defined kind of structural market opportunity, really. I'd go as far 
let's call it a gap in the market in smaller listed companies in the UK, a bespoke tailored strategy to capture a slice of that, and then execution. You need the people and the process in place to pull those first two parts together. In terms of getting to know Alex, I believe it was a site visit in Gdansk. I think we first properly spent some time with each other. I think Alex was working for Downing at the time and I was on the Gresham team doing some DD out there. Fire alarms. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that was fun. I think at the time, the shares themselves were setting off fire alarms. Yeah, that wasn't so fun. That's a good example of probably your background of different getting involved. So I don't like to get too messy, but I like it when someone fixes something. Yeah, it's one of those where you, it's mind-blowingly obvious. It's a great product and great team. And you're like, why isn't it working? And you kind of want to get involved, but you shouldn't. Jeremy mentioned different ways of identifying and capturing alpha for clients. What I've sort of been brought up on and learned is really spotting value and sort of trying to do something about it with a hands-on approach. You know, thorough DD on why the earnings and the valuation multiple or the capital allocation within a business could be improved or get better. And then really getting hands-on, not quite activists, but not far off to help do something about those opportunities. You've spotted very much a velvet glove approach rather than boxing glove, but certainly fairly direct. I'm thinking, Alex, perhaps from your perspective, you tend to operate at a more liquid level where you can just say, well, actually, this isn't going quite how I'd like it to go. Therefore, I'm going to move on and look at something else. I haven't got the mentality or the charm to do what Laurie does. So, you know, there's 1,500 things I can buy and sell. I only do about 15 or 20 of them. So I keep it a bit simpler. And I've learned just to move on because there are better specialists in this space. So, Laurie, why do you choose to dig in? What's the prize? What are you after here? First of all, why do I do it? Well, partly a reflection of how my sort of mind works, but also I'm nowhere near smart enough to run a complicated model-based system like Alex. So I'd sort of take a more direct approach. I'm from a family business background. You know, I grew up around buying and selling and, and sort of hard work. And when you're quite an active direct manager, those are some of the core tenets, really. It's really about identifying a dislocation between the sort of fast-moving price of an equity, i.e. the share price, and perhaps sort of slow or patchy misunderstood information about the underlying security. We really look for five to six key variables within the earnings and or the multiple of a stock that we think can improve and we can help them improve. And that drives a sort of three to five year view on much higher intrinsic value than is represented in the shares today. A bit more sort of why I do it. I definitely enjoy it. Working with people directly certainly presses my buttons. It's challenging. That stimulates me mentally. A lot of it is about sort of drive and working towards a shared common conclusion. When you're a large shareholder in an undervalued business, you're on the same bench as the management because you both are aligned to see better recognition in the shares of the underlying business. I'll be honest, a lot of the variables that we identify or diagnose, they're not usually rocket science. It's about having the, the alignment and the energy to do something about them. When you own 100 stocks, there's not enough hours in the day and it's not worth doing. But when you have 20 sort of core ideas in your portfolio, it's quite meaningful to work on them directly once you've allocated your investment onto the register. There's quite a lot of evidence this stuff works. It's not just my experience at Gresham working with the old team. Various studies by the likes of Alan Brav, where there's very clear evidence, actually, that post-intervention from an activist, you get pretty good 
return on assets improvement over three to five years. And it's not just a year one sort of bounce either. It's consistent through the five years and beyond. I've cited those studies a little bit in the admission document for the company. You get a lot of headlines about, I don't know, what Nelson Peltz is doing at Disney or at Unilever or... Or Sivion at Vodafone or Aviva. Yes. But in our world of sort of 100 million market cap companies, is it more effective, less effective? There's no direct data in that study. But what I can draw out is uh, one of the key comments in the study is it all comes down to the activist's ability to influence and drive outcomes. Well, if it's a smaller business, like in the case that we all invest in, you know, two things to flag, a smaller business is much easier to understand and diagnose and help fix. It's a smaller entity to get your arms or your mind around. But also in terms of influence as well, starting at the start, it's a lot cheaper to buy a very big stake in the company. So I think from that perspective, certainly philosophically, it stacks up that therefore this thing can work. It has worked not just for products I've worked on in the past with team members, but you know, people like Christopher Mills have been doing this sort of thing for a very long time and, and outperforming through various cycles. What kind of returns are you expecting from this strategy? What's the evidence out there, what people can expect? So we're targeting a sort of aggregated portfolio return of 15% per annum, 15% IRR. And that's really derived from targeting three to five year, two times your money plus investments. Those returns aggregate down at a costs and compound to about 15% per annum. That's what we've done before Gresham House Strategic, now called Rockwood's. The fund I worked on with colleagues that delivered, I think, 15.2% total return for shareholders. And actually, Strategic Public Equity LP, another fund I worked on, Aggression, delivered 18.2% IRR. The process I've learned and worked on with people has delivered that sort of number. And some of the longer term, more active managers have done the same. We think of it as basically a liquid, unleveraged private equity fund. That's how we think about it. We know there's going to be some really volatile years, and actually it's probably one of the reasons why it will work. It's about making sure you're there for the right, you can talk about its time horizons and all the rest of it, but you've got to work the book enough times and have enough pitches that the returns come out the back end. At the end of the day, it's the highest returning asset class in the world. And if you can access it in a private equity way or an activist way and boost it and put some risk control around it, that's quite an attractive, high risk, but quite an attractive uh, proposition that should have a meaningful impact on the portfolio if you allocate a small amount to it, which is what we've done with similar people in the past and what I kind of see here. We've talked about return. What about time frame? This stuff takes time. It's resource intensive and it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to formulate a plan. You've then got to work with the target company to enact it. And then you've got to wait for the rest of the world to digest that, wake up to it. And that translate into the shares. I mean, our typical target investment horizon is three to five years, and it tends to be nearer the five than the three, unless we sort of have a really great outcome. Because as I say, it takes time and good work. It isn't overnight. You know, this isn't about trying to spin a story very quickly. We do try to make fundamental changes in the equities we've identified. Amy Mobile was a great example a top performing investment for the old funds that I worked on, I think sort of 23% IRR or so over five years, we spotted a tech business trading on seven times versus a sector of 15. It took time to improve the business, so it did eventually re-rate to that sector average. We had diagnosed that the founder was still the chair, which had created sort of governance questions, but more importantly, because he lived abroad and didn't speak good English, 
that was off-putting a number of sort of more traditional institutional managers that might meet this business and invest in it. So we put a change of chair, a chap called John Allwood joined the board who the city knew and could talk to and, and engage with. We'd also observed they had a complex capital structure, sort of founder shares, B shares that again, I think the more traditional fund manager, if there's two ideas in the in-tray and one's got a very complex capital structure and one has a very simple one, the simple one's much more attractive. So we simplified that. So what you're saying is Alex would have had a look at that and then moved on? I would have exactly moved on, unless I thought someone was going to change it for me in the next six months. Correct. And look, that investment delivered the sort of holy grail which or the trifecta, which is 20% EPS growth per annum for five years. That good performance helped translate into a multiple re-rating of seven times to, I think it was circa 16. And then Cisco spotted what the team had and came and bought it on 20 plus times in 2021. It was a great business that was just overlooked what they actually did. I think you probably all online shopped before when you get a text from DPD or whoever it is asking you to press one for come back tomorrow, two to leave it with the neighbor or three stick it in the porch. That was in my mobile. But no one really understood that because it was this overlooked, misunderstood equity on the A market, but was a cracking business. Stick it in the Porsche just for fund managers. Uh, oh, yeah, I heard that as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a special option for. If I'm the founder of that business, I'm the chair, I'm living in the part of the world I want to live in, I probably think I either control or think I control a nice asset listed in London. How do you go about changing that? Look, I used that term earlier. Velvet glove, not boxing glove. And this is relationship-based activism. It's not about tipping up with a capital A activism at an EGM or an AGM and making a lot of sound and bluster. It's about making returns. And you do that by working with a board that has a fiduciary duty and building a relationship with them. You know, I'm a big reader of Ray Dalio's works. And he talks a lot about, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about what's true. And I've taken that really on board. And actually, if you, in a minuted board meeting with a board of a company where you've identified upside for shareholders, sustainable upside as well, it's quite hard, as I say, in a minuted meeting with people with a fiduciary duty to those shareholders to totally dismiss you, especially if you present objective fact in a polished manner. I'm reminded of a colleague spotted in a business called Northbridge, which is now called Crestcheck, the sort of lack of use of Roki, both in the way the business was run, but also the investor reporting. And, and our work on that had revealed that one division had 20% plus Roki, which was being hidden by a much poorer division. And rather than proverbially go and boot the door down and shout and make a noise, I was asked to pull together some comps on Roki with other listed businesses. And we presented to the chair and the CEO. And those changes happened. The business sold off Tasman, which was the weaker division. And then that revealed Crestchick which the business renamed to, had a cracking Roki profile from its hire fleet. And a bit like Mobile, that's now been recognized by a larger peer and a Greco bid for it at £4, which is about four times what we first paid for shares in that business four or five years ago. Why aren't we all doing this, Lawrence? Why isn't everybody doing this? Why does this opportunity exist? A few core reasons. The reason why the wider market's not doing it is because it's not scalable. This will never be a two billion, three billion pound fund that big asset managers can throw resource into as a strategy and help scale their massive businesses. But it doesn't need to be that sort of size for me to really enjoy the work and deliver for a select specialist pool of clients. I guess that's the first reason why there's only a few managers doing it. But even within that, I learned how to do this almost by accident. I joined a business called Gresham House, as I said earlier, 
seven years ago. I loved markets. I loved investing, but hadn't really come across activism before or you know, an active and engaged style. And I just spent seven years learning about it. As I say, by accident, it turned out it pressed my buttons. I think everyone in life has a heat map and definitely parts of my heat map that I'd like to think a warmer would be sort of work ethic and working with people. And this is a resource intensive strategy that works with people. That's certainly why I've stuck to it and I'm taking it forward under a new roof now. If you go to a company, they're, you know, they know the company better, they're delighted to talk about their baby. You'll build a relationship with someone, like nine times out of 10, it's very positive. And then if you come back with an observation or a bit of work they haven't got time to do because it's on the side of their desk, it, it can only be a productive thing. It's a lot of work. It's a really lot of work. And to get paid for that, to put it crudely, is quite difficult. To do that in a scalable way, that's tricky. Whereas in your world, it's easier to move on. In this world, you're not necessarily financially, but in terms of your human capital, you're far more invested. For my personality, if I do all the work and it's mind-blowingly obvious, I get sucked in, which is why I don't do into activism because it's then hard for me to walk away. And then basically I want to take the company private and just do it. And that's not my mandate or my skill set. That quite neatly tees up the third element of sort of how this works, why people do it. We do tend to buy minority block stakes in the targets we find. We'll own anything between 5 and 25% of the listed equity. If you read the works of Alon Brav and the like on activism, the median's about 9.7% as a sort of shareholder in the business. So bang, you know, in the middle of our target range. And of course, shares aren't just shares in the profits. They're a share of the votes usually as well. And that's a great backstop really to, to sort of underpin your seriousness in the message you're delivering to a board. We don't tend to walk away. We actually roll our sleeves up and recover for our clients and our shareholders when we do inevitably get things wrong. And there's some quite active examples of that in the past where the traditional investor might have lost a lot more than we ended up doing because we rolled our sleeves up and sorted things out and, as I say, recovered value. What are your options when that engagement starts to go wrong? One thing that's quite interesting in the way we operate, we're very open from the start with the companies we DD how we operate, what our agenda is. And actually in the past, we've invited management teams to speak to other companies we're invested in. I remember one target was very wary until we did that. We're usually fairly open in, in what we think can happen, what their plan is to sort of make stuff happen themselves. And we tend to not invest without agreement or certainly being on a similar page with those core variables we've spotted to improve the equity. That said, yeah, we'll have the mandate and the flexibility to take things off the market or own them privately if we need to. If I'm totally honest, that's more designed so that we can be creative in the capital structure. Things like convertible loan notes in a listed business, those as securities themselves count as unlisted, but they're in a listed company. But we are there to really cross the bridge between private and public world because a lot of these smaller companies are actually, they behave like private companies. They just happen to have a quote. This job involves engaging, presumably, with all manner of stakeholders, including, on occasion, other investors. One of the fantastic things about working in small caps, investing in them, is it's still a proper market. You can walk around the square mile and you can bump into a counterparty or a peer just walking between meetings. And there really are faces to name still, whereas I think in large and mid caps, a lot of that's gone. And for me, again, as a people person, that's very enjoyable. We've had great success being on the same register as like-minded investors. I said at the start, Alex and I were on a site visit in Poland together. At the time, he was working at Downing, I was at Gresham House, and here we are now, both launching our own 
or he's already very successfully launched and I'm launching our own ventures and projects. And there's very much scope for aligned thinking. And a lot of what we do boils down to shareholder value protection and creation. So funny enough, a lot of other shareholders quite like the idea of you popping up on the register as part of an ecosystem or them coming on something you're invested in. And that works both ways. Definitely, but not in concert party. Of course, that's the key thing to sort of be wary of. But as I say, it's more the market's a small place. People can spot what you're doing and align to your thesis. We don't really work in concert with other managers. It's more just like-minded individuals tend to fish in similar ponds. I think we do a bit of a renaissance in public markets. I think for 15 years or so, private markets have made equity markets relatively unattractive. Debt's been cheap privately. Private equity investment funded by cheap debt has become cheap itself because they've been able to pay higher multiples and still make their return targets. We're all very familiar that that trade is at least partially unwinding now. Rate The price of money, the price of capital, the volume and accessibility to it is changing a lot. And therefore, it's not illogical to assume that perhaps some of the relative attraction of equity markets might increase too. I mean, we're golden age of family offices as well. You know, we had the stockbrokers in the 80s, um, property guys in the 90s, hedge funds in the noughties, the teens have been the private equity boom that Lois talked about. I think it's the family offices now because they can make a decision and there's big, big pots of money of small, sophisticated teams. I agree with both of you that we're at a new era coming out of COVID, the lockdown, this huge infusion of liquidity we've seen into the world in recent years. And now we've got this sort of normalization of interest rates, this sort of return to normal feeling, which is, if I think back, the period immediately after the dot-com boom, where I think you had the longest period ever, or certainly in the last 50 years, basically from 2000 to 2007 of small cap outperformance. And then you had the period after the financial crisis and after the European debt crisis, 2013, 2014, which had this huge spike in IPO activity in the London market in particular. I don't know which we're going to resemble most, but we've got the makings of that kind of era-defining moment now. And I think if it's a world that is not defined by free money, that it's going to become more of a stock picker's market than a trend follower's market. It's not your first radio, is it, Jeremy? I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we're all speculating and perhaps also hoping. So, Yeah, we've talked a lot, haven't we, Jeremy, in the office and whatnot about the move in the cost of capital and that impact on the value of time and the bringing forward of listed company, but also shareholder requirements in terms of what they're backing and investing and seeking now. And when money was cheap and therefore sort of time was effectively cheap, growth tomorrow is very attractive and prioritized. Yeah, absolutely. Blue sky was cheap. It was. But if now investors are prioritizing today, companies have to reflect that in their strategies and actions. And as an investor that focuses on near-term sort of catalysts and drivers of almost self-help, that's quite attractive opportunity set to be thinking about. How do you get this sort of domain expertise, the confidence to be able to go and engage with a company about which you may have only just recently learned the ins and outs of what they actually do. It's one of my favorite parts of the strategy we operate. I don't think that anyone in any walk of life or any stage of their life ever has 
all the answers and, and fund managers certainly don't. In the case of our investment process, that's why it's a team-based process. We produce ideas and then they are presented to a committee who share their wisdom and experience to opine on which ideas are great rather than good, but also whittle out the not so great. But in terms of actually looking at an opportunity, in that instance, we just speak to people who know their onions in whichever sector or situation we're looking at. We have an advisory board on the fund. You're actually on it. Assuming that's why you asked the question, Jeremy. <laughs> I've definitely learned a thing or two about stock picking and what drives a share. And that's certainly where fund managers know their onions, but no one else is ever going to be an expert on hazardous waste or V2C communications or media or legal funding. And therefore, we engage with people we know and trust that have worked and do work in those sectors to really understand what good looks like. You know, we've got Clive Sharp on there. He was former chairman of Corn, before that CEO of Golden Wonder. If we were looking at an F&B business, I'd be straight on the phone to Clive saying, here's my desktop-based analysis. What do you think? Do you know the company? Who do you know that's involved? But most importantly, what does good look like and what market reports do I need to understand and digest when I assess this business? Because when you're investing for three to five years, it's as much about the share you're buying as the underlying security. So are there any sectors that you won't look at? I think the way this investment strategy tries to mitigate risk and maximize resource is thorough due diligence on the key variables in an investment story. If there's only one or maybe two variables, such as an FDA approval or a clinical trial or a license to drill for a resource, that kind of falls away, that ability to develop a sort of amalgamated edge. And for that reason, we steer away from biotech or resource extraction. What we really like to do is invest in things we can understand. And I'm sure that's stating the obvious, but I really quite strongly believe that you can't value something you don't truly understand. And the easiest things to understand are the simple ones. The easiest to DD is the tangible, whether that's tangibility of assets, so property, cash, brand equity that's very clear, stock, whatever that is, or tangibility of profits. And by that, I really mean how much of them is cash or tangibility of catalysts. And that's really how proximitous are they to really happening to unlock the hidden value we think we've identified. I quite like that you're staying away from some of those sectors because I, I quite like those sectors. The biotech and the oil resources one always amuses me a little bit because there's some really weird things that happen because it gets ignored. So there's a company I'm looking at the moment. It's got one product in development on the healthcare side and it's worth 300 million market cap. And there's another one which has got 28 products out for, you know, get approval. And they've also got nine from their past that are currently cash flow generative. And that's 400 million market cap. Now, the probabilities there of that first one being, even if it was 100% likelihood, and even if it delivered on all its cash flow, it's already completely 100% priced in. So it's a very good short candidate. And then the other side, the other company is ridiculously undervalued and should be a couple of billion pound company. So the asymmetry is interesting, which is what we'd go look at. But you can still have the weird situation where the first company solves cancer and the last company, everything fails and they get it wrong. And that's where your deep dive starts kicking in. So we attack the area of mispricing as opposed to try and be specialists on everything. If your view of the world, your model is telling you that a certain sector is deeply undervalued by other investors, how do you avoid or do you not taking excessive sector risk? Great question. So there's two ways of doing it. One is you market neutral it. 
or the other is you take, try and trade it on the rotations, assuming the market sectors are going to trade. So what I found works is actually I take the trading view and essentially the more sectors rotate, the more I get paid. If they stagnate, we do badly. So when tech was king and resources were dogs since 2014, my rotation trade wasn't working very well. I was getting paid on market and idiosyncratic stock payments. And fortunately for me, I set up Kerno with Ed in 2019, and we've had a lot of sector rotations. We've had a bit of a tailwind, which I don't think repeat over the next three years, whether it be COVID, war, interest rates, et cetera. So you've had a, you know, our short book pretty much shot the lights out on the tech stuff and our resources stuff's done great. And actually, we're now going short resources, which probably the only people doing that. So we ride basically rotation, and the skill will be over time is can we tell when it's going to speed up or slow down? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think you pointed out, we were chatting earlier, that we know our biggest exposure is financials today. It's a bit tricky, and financials basically are piggybacking off GDP and us coming out of the recession this year. So it's quite a slow burn for that to reverse. Not impossible, but it needs a real kick, which I'm not bothered if it doesn't change, by the way, but we'll see. I normally ask people to sign off with some sort of philosophical view of the world. Alex, you're the established active fund manager. You've got your own business. As I said earlier, from my perspective, you're still a very young man. Laura's launching his own fund. He's going off into the brave new world of being the master of his own destiny in terms of creating a whole new investment vehicle. What should he look out for? What's the advice from the, your position? My view is I treat it like you're an artist and you've got an art gallery. And at the end of the day, you're trying to produce the best art that you can. And the gallery bit is the bit where people, the buzz and the story is where you make your money from the business perspective. And the two are very different. And our business is split two ways as well. So don't ever lose the passion, which clearly you have on the art side and always work towards that. It doesn't matter if people don't like it because you'll get there and you've got the skill. And then it's just uh, on the buzz side and the, and the marketing side, that's just a, a war of attrition as long as you've got an authentic story, which you do. So go forward with all the confidence that you can have. And basically, no plan survives battle with the enemy. Stuff's going to go wrong, but just keep going. Mike Tyson said, wasn't it? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Exactly. Okay, guys. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, in the company of mavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.